Hello, and thanks for joining us once again to Cave of the Cross Apologetics. I'm Patrick. And I'm Tony. And we're uh, once again continuing on in our uh, Dr. Stokes book, uh, How to Be an Atheist. Many skeptics aren't skeptical enough, and we're trying to form the concept of objective, or as close as we can get to objective morality, as it comes to a uh, completely atheistic or non-theistic uh, worldview. And mm -hmm. so... That's a, a big thing that we're going to be doing in this chapter, and uh, this episode, and probably the next episode, uh, we'll have a probably a hard cut in that uh, we're splitting it up because there are a lot of uh, interesting concepts stuff, here, and yeah. just you know, it, it'll give everybody a break to right. kind of digest. So, <laughs> yeah, the, the the fancy name is can we naturalize ethics? That's, right. that's the guy. That's yeah. the idea, right? Right. Can we have an all natural morality? In right. fact, that's the name of this chapter. That's right. <laughs> yeah, we're yeah. trying to do what Hume did and try and find a scientific explanation for how we can measure goodness or badness or some approximation to those concepts. So he says here, and um, and the subtitle of the chapter is the well-being theory of morality, yeah. and he says he wants to do two things in this chapter. First, that he will present this naturalistic version of morality, and then uh, by focusing on Sam Harris's view, mm -hmm. and then second, he says that he will consider some problems with Harris's account. So those that's what he's trying to accomplish in this right. uh, in this particular uh, chapter. All right, so let's jump in here and see uh, see how he does here. So um, consider, he says, that there's an objective fact about whether a human being is suffering, right? We can know one way or another, right? And he says, suppose the pain in your lower back, let's say. Suppose that a few days later the pain is gone. He says, all things considered, uh, you'll be better off than you were. The pain is now gone, so you're no longer suffering. And so he says this, in fact, your well-being seems traceable to facts about your physiology, mm -hmm. to your physical facts. And these physical facts trace facts about your brain states, for example, and they are objective. Right. So we have objective brain states, he's suggesting, that are you know, purportedly maybe able to be measured mm -hmm. or viewed or whatever, you know. Right. And so that's, that's the first step toward getting to these types of uh, uh, naturalistic values that uh, that Harris got. He says, um, if, as Harris explains, human well-being depends entirely on events in the world and states of the human brain, then well-being is something that science can speak directly to. Right. right? Yeah, we can we can put on the the little brain monitors and and measure, okay, this is what uh, is flaring up in your pain center or here's uh, the physiological symptoms of, of stress being caused. And so we measure, you know, how, um, how a lie detector works and, uh, we can, we can make determinations based on, you know, whether or not you're feeling good. The, the, the being is what it's going to come back to. And, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so well-being then, if indeed this, a particular action produces well-being, it is morally right. If right. it doesn't, it's morally wrong, mm -hmm. right? Well-being, right? And that can be measured, uh, with regard to brain states. He says, uh, he calls this Harris's Humean project, right? Because Hume was the one that, you know, posed trying to get morality from a, a natural source, right? Mm -hmm. From the natural world. And so he calls this Hume's Humean project. And uh, he says, now, so here's the question What reason does Harris offer for making ethics a matter of well being? Why is it that ethics is a matter of well being? Well, the, the bottom line is harms 
that uh, good and evil need only consist in this, and it makes no sense whatsoever to claim that an action that harms everyone affected, even as perpetrator, might still be good. Right. The main criteria, therefore, is that misery and well-being um, not be completely random, <laughs> right? So we only need to admit that experiences of conscious creatures are lawfully dependent on states of the universe. And so once we have that, Harris then defines good as anything that anything that supports well-being and bad as that which causes harm. So if it supports well-being, it's it's uh, it's good. Right. And if it doesn't support well-being, that's bad. Right. Right. If it hurts you, if it harms you, if it makes people feel bad, unnecessary suffering. Mm-hmm. Right. That right. Harm, harms the well-being. That's <laughs> bad. Right. And again. These are brain states. They can be measured mm-hmm. scientifically, that sort of thing. Right. right. So he says, a rational approach to this ethics becomes possible once we realize that questions of right and wrong are really questions about the happiness and suffering of sentient creatures. That's really what it boils down to, right? Well-being has to do with happiness and suffering, right? Mm-hmm. So he says, in one sense, Harris's view isn't at all new. It's a version of utilitarianism. Right. right? So uh, kind of what's, uh, what's right uh, is based on... Uh, this idea of well, it works. Or, yeah, yeah. Or so it's it a works. consequentialist yeah. theory, and if uh, you know, usually it's talked about the greatest good for the greatest number right. kind of thing, yeah. right? And so, if the consequences result in the greatest good for the greatest number, then that's the right action. Mm-hmm. That's the morally right action. Right. The, to do. the trolley problem is is in there. Um, killing killing the baby to save all humanity. <laughs> that's in there. Uh, you know, uh, all, all those uh, all those little fun uh, thought experiments. Uh, pretty much. Um, Machiavelli uh, would, would, would appreciate this this uh, type of um, thought experiment. Yeah. So, so we, that's a that's a consequentialist ethics. The consequences are what we're looking at, and in this case, we would we call these hedonistic consequences. Hedon is, uh, you know, uh, good uh, um, feelings and that sort of thing. And so um, he says Mills, both John Stuart Mills and Harris accounts are also called hedonistic theories because they identify goodness with pleasure or happiness. So that's the idea of hedon, pleasure or happiness. Although the pleasure need not be simply physical, right? It can include higher pleasures like friendship and love and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. So the idea here is if it brings out pleasure or happiness, even these higher level pleasures, then uh, that is the morally good thing the morally right yeah. thing and, and we do see parts of society uh rotating around this idea this uh, ends justify the means well you have the you know donnie roscoe he's an undercover fbi agent he goes in he does all these bad things you know at what point in time do we pull him out because then he's lost well although he's you know uh been an extortionist a drug dealer uh, a pimp uh you know a, a runner for the mob uh, i mean he's pretty much on par with allowing for uh, uh police officers to get uh, shot and killed and political rivals and and different people getting assassinated. (laughs) So as long as in the end, the organization's taken down, then the ends justify the means. That's right. Right. You can do, yeah, because the consequences is what counts, right? right? In this case, it's it's good consequences. It's consequences that bring happiness as opposed to suffering, unnecessary suffering. Yeah. (laughs) And of course, he says that, uh, he he mentions here, Senate Armstrong, Argues for a similar view. Armstrong calls his view harmed-based morality. Right, according to this view, what really makes certain acts immoral is that such acts cause harm to other people for no good reason. 
right? So the benefit of these views, according to Senator Armstrong, is that it's completely secular. So he can get around God with this. It's just a matter of, you know, uh, you know does it harm? There's no reason to doubt that death, pain, and disability are bad. There's no reason, there's no doubt. This is no doubt true, but it's enough to account for morale. Mm-hmm. So there you go. He, his is similar to Harris's. His is based, he calls it a harm-based morality. Right. Well, and, you know, we, we, we do have to take time to establish the fact that at least Harris is dealing with an attempt to explain what uh, we talked about in, I believe, the last chapter, the chapter before, of this kind of innate uh, sense, this uh, uh, dr- drives people to argue um, uh, viciously or uh, with uh, intense emotion. And so uh, Harris is attempting to find a, a root cause in that other than just personal preference right. or at least what he claims as uh, you know puts a puts a stage in there between personal preference uh, kind of this um, subjective whatever is good for me is good for you uh, um, postmodernist type thinking Relativism. yeah and yeah. he's trying to ground it in a, a, a Western um, idea right. so then we asked the question well then what is well-being? Uh, I need to get that clear, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Definitions matter, right? even, <laughs> even even today. Uh, so for an unbeliever to account for objective morality without having to rely on God, to define a moral act as one that contributes to well-being and an immoral act as one that reduces it. So that, that's the definition. So whatever contributes to well-being is good, and whatever is an immoral act is what reduces well-being. Mm-hmm. So uh, bad, bad well-being, good, good well-being. Kind of, kind of easy to follow there. So uh, Harris, uh, uh, Doctor Stokes is going to look at uh, uh, Harris's uh, kind of idea of what it is with suspicion. So he says, "Well, we might ask Harris, what is exactly well-being? If there is a way to define it, so that we'll have some precise guide to us, this might be asking a bit much." But Harris says, "That's reasonable enough. It seems to me that the concept of well-being is." like the concept of physical health. It resists precise definition and yet is indispensable. In fact, the meaning of both terms seem uh, likely to remain uh, perpetually open to revision as we make progress in science. Right. So so he wants to say here that it's, the, the, you know, we don't, that it's vague, right? right? It's not very precise in terms of what well-being is. Mm-hmm. I don't think he's going to hold that against Harris, right? right? Yeah. But he, it is a vague concept. Yeah. Right? The, the, uh, you know, in, in the um, the weights and measures department, you have the, the cooled uh, one-inch uh, length ruler to measure all one inch of the rulers with you have uh precise pounds there's not going to be a well-being <laughs> stick or yeah. flask or wh- whatever whatever that might be so yes he's not going to hold it uh so when it comes to details our definition of well-being will uh will ultimately though depend on our worldview that is whatever we count as well-being will be influenced by what sort of things we value and what we think reality is like. Yeah, so that is a really interesting and I think important Very concept. Important. Notice he says, um, a stubbed toe decreases my well-being, all things considered. A knee replacement will likely increase it, despite the obvious downside. Getting married could go either way, and what about going to church? So well-being is, uh, you know, there's a lot of wiggle room with regard to it, and it has to do with uh, what he says here, our... Um, kind of our worldview, mm-hmm. you know, how, how, how our, he calls it theory laden, right? So it's how we view the world. So for instance, going to church might be add to well-being for some people and not for others, right? Which is, I mean, you know, 
now we, so we have to consider that. Right. right? Or, or, you know, g- going back to uh, the Donny Brasco example, you have um, some lawmakers that don't want that type of behavior and view it as, as kind of an entrapment scenario. And so they don't allow police officers to take part in that, whereas others do. So uh, what, what, which, is, which is the factor there that, that leads to well-being? Well, it ultimately comes down to what you view as, I don't know, fair or you, you have to kind of define your well-being and other moral examples in, in that one. But um, um, you're ultimately, once again, coming back to worldview. Right. And, and, yeah, and our values, right? And right. our values. So our values help determine it. He calls this uh, theory-laden well-being. Right? Yeah. So it's the, our theory about the way things work will determine to a certain extent what we consider as well-being. Mm-hmm. Right. So movie uh, 300, you know, loosely, very loosely based on, you know, the, the real thing, you know, the, the uh, Spartan people in that movie uh, put, put out their children in the wilderness and said those who are Spartan enough will come back and survive. We call that child abuse today. And so in, in what in what sense uh, are we to say, well, that was an immoral act? Well, that's kind of us looking back and saying that's immoral. But for them, that was completely a, a, a moral. In fact, that was the highest moral thing because it determined leadership, it determined uh, accountability within the society, it determined strength. That you know, uh, it worked out the survival of the fittest type deal or uh, the luckiest, depending on on how you view it. And so, um, uh, again, ultimately, it comes down to where your values and your values are rooted in your in your worldview, and you can't you can't escape that. Um, uh, I was thinking, too, of um, economics. Economics, there, there's a branch uh, that I subscribe to called, called Austrian economics, where um, uh, uh, th- what things are worth are determined subjectively through, um, through, through value dependent on the person. So, you know, you have the Buddhist who uh, doesn't view, you know, material things as, as important. Well, that million-dollar house to him is zero, but to someone who likes that house it may even be worth two million they might yeah. give more because it enhances it's worth their well-being yeah. yeah yeah so so uh, it, again it ultimately comes down to to your values and it's grounded in your worldview yeah he moves on then to pursue this issue uh regarding identical brain states yeah. <laughs> he says here's a reason to think that brain states aren't the only things that matter for well-being Right, so Harris is suggesting brain states is the deal, right? Because we can measure those, right? right? A, a seven on your <laughs> non-pleasure scale, or a, a, I don't know how you would measure it, parts per million. Yeah, uh, some EKG probably. You know, the, there's big spikes in your pleasure centers. However, it's done. I'm sure it's done. So yeah. So yeah. so what he does here to to show it, he says that we can have two identical brain states, and he asks us to do a thought experiment about. Brain in a vat, right? That's what he, that's what he does, right? He says, uh, imagine a scenario in which there are two identically happy brain states. These are exactly two brain states that are exactly alike. They're identical. But the first one is a brain in a vat, vat hooked up to a vast computer that can simulate, stimulate rather, the proper neurons produced uh, that will produce happiness, right? Mm-hmm. So there you are. This is a brain. It's in a vat. It's hooked up, and it can... It can cause the uh, these brain states to be, you know, to, to be yeah. activated, yeah. right? So there's the first one. The other one, the second one, an identical brain state belongs to a person who is actually living the blissful life you imagine. <laughs> and so he asked, which one would you prefer to be, yeah, right? right. <laughs> 
Depends on who's poking my brain, I guess. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> but probably not the brain in the vat. Most right? likely not. <laughs> yeah, and 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 uh, we do see this. Um, um, that there's. Uh, um, Studies on people who kind of have these uh, like waking state nightmares where they kind of feel a presence in the room. And a, a lot of uh, theory is that like alien abduction phenomenon is tied to that type of waking state feeling where your brain is is not quite awake, but you're still in kind of that REM-y weird sleep. And it's able to be reproduced by uh, scientists in labs by stimulating parts of the brain. But which which one's having the worst experience? Right. Well, right. Is it the person who can't wake themselves up and is feeling that presence and feeling like they're being violated or taken or there's that evil, malicious presence? Or is it the person who's sitting comfortably in the chair knowing that the scientists are doing this? I mean, they might not physically know this. They might be running through experiments, but um, they know that they're in a controlled environment that something's probably happening. So right. Right. which one would you rather be? It, you, the same spikes in that, that, that <laughs> you know, recess of your brain, but... You know, you probably would rather be on the on the one that can hit one the button to, to say, be get better me out of there. Right. Yeah. 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 And so he says, you know, if brain states are all there is to well-being, then, of course, uh, Harris would have to say that uh, the brain in the vat plus the real person, they have equal, you know, well-being. And yeah. therefore, you know, whatever is going on is is uh, is they're flourishing equally. Of course, mm -hmm. you know. Um, uh, Mitch uh, rap, uh, Mitch here wants to suggest that um, that um, this seems to be a wrong answer. So even if morality is only a well-being, it seems doubtful that well-being is just simply a matter of brain states. That it needs to be, you know, you got to be more than just brain it states. Needs to be more. Right. Yeah. And then we go on to say well-being is usually cashed out in terms of the greatest good for the greatest number of people. And that's the that's the consequentialist, the utilitarian type of ethic. Right, right. right. Yeah. Uh, it's better to, to pull the trolley handle and kill one person or three. Well, probably, I mean, you can kind of do what you want, but it seems more likely that you want to save three over one just because people are people. That's right. Numbers uh, count. Right. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Uh, but no one has ever experienced this collective happiness, and I, I, this is this is a great point. A great point that we we um, that that should be discussed, and it's great that uh, Dr. Stokes uh, identifies it, um, because this is kind of also too where uh, our current society is going, and and it depends on on um, how one determines through their worldview um, what what it means to to think individually and collectively. So uh, Harris brain state view uh, trucks in the happiness or well-being that experienced by humans, but no one experiences more than a single brain state, namely his or her own. Right? I've uh, you know we're both watching a baseball game. Uh, the the Yankees hit a home run. For me, uh, I'm elated. But you, you're a Tigers fan, and you you, <laughs> you know you see them lose 102 games in, in a season or whatever, <laughs> whatever it might be. Um, so uh, you, we're both experiencing different. Uh, this the same thing, but we're we're experiencing different types of of, of pleasure or lack thereof. Uh, so of course, uh, other people's well being may contribute to yours, uh, but that is a different issue and one that of what causes an individual's brain state. The mm -hmm. maximum pleasure ever experienced by anyone is still that of a sole individual brain state. A collective or adaptive happiness or well being is something that no one experiences. It doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. So you can put yourself into other people's shoes. You can you can want to think globally, locally, you know, uh, universally, <laughs> you know, as a country person. But only you are able to, you know, you know, there, there are people who 
who, you know, th- think of patriotism. There are people that are like, uh, yes, I enjoy living in America for the freedoms. And then there's the people that wear flag everything on the 4th of July mm-hmm. and go around, you know, saluting each other. Are they experiencing the same type of well-being for for w- what they view as, as, as a moral good? Or, um, you know, are there, you know, uh, can, can we determine whether or not that um, that uh, that they don't that they don't think collectively right, I think right. only so yeah only only you can only have one set of brain states a person can only have their set of brain mm-hmm. states so there's really no such thing as a collective you know well-being that that doesn't exist because you can only experience one at a time right this is the point that he's trying right. to make here right yeah. the maximum pleasure ever experienced by anyone is still that of a soul individual's brain state a collective or added happiness or well-being is something that no one experiences we just don't experience that all right so then he moves on and he asks the question who is my neighbor <laughs> right who is my neighbor so he says let's suppose that we can uh, countenance a kind of collective well-being all right so now he gives in right right even right. though he 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 uh, you know he says you really can't have it but let's just for sake of argument or whatever he makes this concession right so he says according to Harris all we need to include and all we need to include uh, the entire human species, and then we need to include more than just the entire human right. species. Because we're talking about brain states, right. right? Things with brains. Yeah, everything. Yeah, things with brains, right? So morality might need to take into account additional species, not just humans, mm-hmm. right? Because they're brain states. Come on, let's be fair, right? And so Harris's theory is, um, is that morality can be reduced to brain states or conscious sentient creatures. So there it is, sentient creatures, right? And by this, he means organisms that can experience pain or pleasure mm-hmm. to any degree. So who is my neighbor? The dog, the cat, um, <laughs> the little chinchilla. Yeah, you know. the ape, the, you know, whatever. Yeah. Whatever species, has a brain. Yeah, whatever yeah. has a brain that can experience brain states. They're part of the deal. Right. And yeah. we have to take them into, into our collectiveness when we're talking about, you know, um, the greatest good for the greatest right. number. When I come home, the dog wags its tail. It's happy to see me. I can measure the, the you know, it's like the, uh, the vibration of the cesium model, I, I, uh, molecule. I can, I can measure time with it. So, <laughs> so I'm able to measure the dog's happiness through tail wags. And so that's just a, 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 a outward visualization of his brain state. Yeah, so all those animals that have brain states like that can, that can you know, that can uh, have, uh, you know, good or bad feelings and that sort of thing, they're have to, they right. have to be included in the right. deal. He, he quotes Peter Singer, who is, you know, the uh, well-known ethicist and, uh, you know, person who is really into animal liberation. Mm-hmm. He says, um, Peter says, the expansion of our moral circle should therefore be pushed out until it includes most animals. So there you have it, most right. animals. He says, Singer says, I say most rather than all because there comes a point as we <laughs> move down the evolutionary scale that, Oysters, perhaps, or even more rudimentary, uh, rudimentary organisms when it becomes doubtful if the creature is able to, you know, feel anything. So anything that can feel anything can have brain states, and therefore we have, you know, m- most of the animals in the world should be included in our moral judgment. Right. Well... I, I'm glad that I didn't eat dinner before we did this. Uh, you, unfortunately, you <laughs> ate, ate the cow that has a moral brain state. Yeah, uh, that's terrible. I'm, yeah. I'm just going to have to pick up a salad now. <laughs> so he <laughs> says, uh, but this is not to say that all, all animals are morally equal. 
right? So, so they're not all equal, even though they have brain states. Uh, all animals are equal. Some are more equal than others. That's right. Something <laughs> like that, right? So, he, of course, he wants to privilege us, right? Well, so, this is Singer. Yeah, right? yeah, Singer right. wants to privilege us. So, the human being and a mouse must always be treated equally or um, uh, that their lives are equal in value. Humans, he says, are different from mice. And so they don't need to be treated equally. Humans have interests and ideas, education, future. Mice are not capable of that, yeah. right? I remember him being on uh, Unbelievable Podcast, and his big point that he seemed to harp on was, uh, out of all these ideas, education, is making future plans, ha- having desires that go past the immediate. Mm-hmm. And that, that, is a, that, that is a weird thing to hang your hat on, is <laughs> to just, just, okay, well, I, I'm asleep, therefore I, uh, I, I don't have future goals uh, right now, so therefore I, I revert back to that of a, uh, of, of a field mouse, right? Because <laughs> yeah. I, ha- I don't have future plans at that time. That's right. I, yeah. I had future plans in that I want to wake up after I sleep, but I've stopped, I've ha- stopped having future plans at yeah. that time. So your value has shrunk. Yeah. yeah you're yeah. less morally right. valuable, right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, so obviously Singer concedes that the idea of equal consideration for animals strikes many as bizarre, Right. And, of course, um, Dr. Stokes agrees with that. Right? <laughs> I agree with Singer that it seems bizarre for if no other reason than that we need to force to, we're, we're, we, we're, we need to be forced to acknowledge all manner of animal wickedness. Right. Right. Yeah. Shame on that animal. It would be it would be, uh, uh, for example, immoral and evil and not merely repulsive for a male lion to rape a female lion or eat lion cubs. Right, that's evil. Right, yeah, right? that's the same thing with the if great indeed, apes. And, they're, yeah. they're part of the deal. Right, right? We, they're we're part of the moral circle. Hold, hold uh, Bobo the gorilla on trial for <laughs> mass murder of, of his own kind. That's right. Right. Yeah. So the the issue here, he says, it's it's tempting to think that Richard Taylor is right when he says a hawk that seizes a fish from the sea kills it, but does not murder it. Right. Right. And another hawk that seizes that fish from the talons of the first takes it but does not steal it, right? <laughs> For none of these things is forbidden, says Taylor, right? And so the well-being of these animals is certainly impacted. Things are going well for one and badly for the other. The result, for, uh, good for one and the good for the other. Even so, it doesn't seem that there's anything relevant, he says, to morality going on here. I mean, come on, stealing? I guess we could say it. Or murdering, you know? Yeah. Well, you know, he did murder the... Uh, the fish <laughs> kill it yeah is, is it wrong to uh take from the the, the murder uh, to steal from the murder but... yeah. so harrison singer he says if they are right we may just have to change our minds about including animals within our moral circle right, right? they're part of the deal it would ha- it'd be nice to have a reason for doing so independent of Harris uh harris's theory right so what is that yeah. reason so that that's that's uh the, the next section here is that uh uh okay so we we kind of backed ourselves into a, a little predicament here, and now we we got to find something kind of innate only in humans that sets us apart from the animal kingdom. And future plans doesn't seem it because uh, you know there are crows that um, uh, you know take little pebbles and put it in the glass of water to make the water levels rise. So birds they build yeah. nests, isn't that future plans? <laughs> oh, that's a good one. Yeah. <laughs> you know. yeah. Uh, so, so what is that thing? What is that thing that sets us apart? Although each of us is special, a unique and beautiful snowflake, there's something common to all of us that makes human species stand out, or so we're told. The standard claim is that reason, reason. elevates us above all go. animals. All right. 
Uh, Mark Murphy here says the natural kind human is obviously a distinct sort of organism and distinct in ways that are obviously ethically significant. To take one example, human beings possess reflective and uh, objectivizing, that word, yeah. objectivizing, uh, intelligences, which enables them to call their inclinations into question to see themselves as one person among others. Yeah, for so, reason. Yeah, right. so I can I can see myself collectively in this. Uh, you know, the do unto others is the they would have do unto you, or you know, the negative approach. Um, I can put myself in someone else's shoes, even though I've not experienced that person's life. Um, I've, I've, I'm able to um, to uh, separate my feelings away from, you know, that of someone else's or what, what, uh, barring what my, um, bombastic feelings are, I can suppress those and view the situation in light of whatever it might be, you know, uh, the, the, uh, the, uh, nuclear facility is going to explode. I'm really scared. I can suppress that and I can reason my way and say, okay, if I don't go in there, then everyone else will die. And yeah. I don't want that to happen right. for some odd reason. So, so, and, and, and we have to have some, um, we have to elevate humans. Other, other, otherwise we're, we're in this, you know, uh, hugely, I mean, it's, you know, he says here, um, um, by expanding our moral circle to include animals that are red in tooth and claw, we would increase the global crime rate to unheard of <laughs> levels, right? Right. At least insofar as immorality is outlawed. So we got to have some way to distinguish us. Otherwise, all that stuff that those animals are doing, we have to count as, you know, as immoral. Right. right? Yeah. So it, we, we run the risk of drawing our circle too wide, which is that one, or too small, which is, you know, something like, uh, you know, the, the, the person who... Um, uh, you know, uh, falls unconscious uh, and and aren't uh, isn't able to take care of themselves. Do we have any moral uh, dealings with that person uh, because they can't experience reason or future plans or what whatever it might be? Um, you know, it it, it, it th th this is this is kind of where we get the 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 min, the min and the max. So we can kind of have that uh, slippery slope approach to to um, people's ideas and whether or not it. Uh, conforms within their own worldview or uh, makes sense of, of the world around it. Because th these extreme things uh, need to kind of formulate where we put the fences up. And so that's what uh, that's what reason uh, is trying to do here. Yeah. So, the, so if indeed reason is the deal, what happens, and this is the, mm -hmm. the, the uh, quote that he gets from William Lane Craig, right? Yeah. What happens if there is an alien, right, that's more, that has more reason? Right. Imagine that an extraterrestrial race came from another planet who was as superior to us in intelligence as we are to pigs and cows, and that they began to farm the earth and began using us as food and laboring animals, which is a really good movie, I do have to say. <laughs> what could the atheists say to show them that human beings have intrinsic moral value? That they ought not to do this to human beings. What can we show them? Yeah. Well, they're superior to us. Obviously, they got here. We can't get there, right? They're more, uh, and they have more reason than we do. Right. So that means it makes them up higher on the on mm -hmm. the scale. And so what you know, uh, so they are acting for their well being. <laughs> right. 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 And um, and so who's to say? Right. right? For m moral purposes, not not kind of this might makes right you know, 
brute force attack. It's a let's sit down with the aliens and say, this is why you shouldn't do it to us. And that's always kind of been, you know, in the forefront of sci-fi novels like uh, Contact. You know, uh, you wouldn't go to the Sahara Desert to step on an anthill. Yeah, but how bad would you feel if you went out to the Sahara Desert and stepped on an anthill? Yeah, you know, that's yeah. that's that's the intellectual gap between, you know, this alien species able to hide, uh, you know, uh, um, uh, the code in, in Pi in the universe. And it seems like it, it may even be created for um, that purpose. Pie the number, not pie the dessert. Yeah, Although that'd be impressive too. Yeah, that would yeah. be impressive. That'd be yeah. I like to meet that. Alien. Yeah. <laughs> we got conquered, but at least we have pie. <laughs> uh, so uh, he goes on to say, "It seems to me then the answer is nothing. Uh, the, of 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 what 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 should we?" Uh, tell the the alien race well uh, it doesn't seem like there's anything that we could tell them meaning not even reason sets us apart moreover even if aliens were no more rational than we are it seems the answer would still be the same i don't think this is dr stokes talking i don't think we could point to our rationality alone as something that ought to prevent them from harvesting or harnessing us it is uh, entirely conceivable that our reason would simply make us more useful to them Mm. yeah so you know, the, the, and and uh, again, we do this with animals. Why do we um, breed certain dogs to um, help us hunt, or why are there certain animals that are bred to um, to win ho- horse races? You know, the same thing should be done with people oh, yeah. too. Yes, yeah, with by the aliens, right? right? Yeah. And then, uh, too, uh, I mean, you, you had this type of thinking in uh, tw- 20s, 30s with, uh, you know, like H.G. Wells and that uh, whole uh, concept of like phrenology and, and, and uh, you know, the, the, the Uber race trying to come in, uh, you know, before Hitlerism kind of took it to the extreme. But you had those ideas um, burrowing in the consciousness of saying superior, yeah, superiors and inferiors. And, right. N- yeah. Not even racially speaking, just uh, the. the because evolution arises out of, you know, the the ether, um, there uh, it, it follows logically that at some point there are certain individuals or species or tribes that uh, may evolve quicker or better or are more suited to the environment, and they need to suppress those that uh, would uh, do them harm and try and mix with their perfect DNA. And so that's why you know the the kings and queens of old uh, look as great as they do even today. Yeah. <laughs> 